and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a seasoned Food Network star on the podcast to talk all about his journey to world-renowned chef and restaurateur with a career spanning more than 35 years. He talks about adjusting to life in the Southwest after cutting his teeth in New York City, why the landscape of owning and operating a restaurant isn't quite what it used to be, and his key thoughts on restaurant success. You most certainly know him from his long-running role as a judge on Chopped and more recently as the host of Chopped Sweets. Coming at us from Arizona, let's welcome Scott Conant to the pod. Scott, welcome to the pod. So great to have you on. I like this uh, casual Scott that, that I'm seeing in, in the reflection here. For our listeners who can't see, we've got the uh, we've got the Yankees cap on, a sweatshirt. It, it's a departure from what we normally see uh, with you on Chopped, all, all dressed to the nine. So I like I like the casual version. Well, thank you. You know, I, if even if I don't make it to the gym, I'm trying to play the part. <laughs> I do that a lot. It makes me feel better. I do that a lot. I wear I wear yoga pants almost exclusively. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I can't I can't get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do have to say you are certainly in the running for for one of the best dressed chopped judges. In your opinion, though, who takes that title? Is it you, Marcus, GZ? I mean, I feel like you guys are all kind of always trying to outdo each other. I know there, there's no internal competition. It's really hard to compete with Marcus. I <laughs> mean, true. he got that. He got that look and he wears those hats and he, you know, he is, I mean, he's Marcus, you know, yeah. but in GZ, I would say is, is, is a close second. I listen in, in that list of three, I don't mind coming in third. No, That's, it's all good. That, yeah, that, that's a bad. that's a good place to be. Absolutely. Obviously, we're going to dive into all things Food Network with you. But before we get to that, I kind of wanted to take a, a little bit of a step back and just, you know, kind of talk to you about your past, because I think it is really incredibly interesting. You, you didn't have like a typical high school experience. You attended a vocational school at 15 to study culinary arts, but that actually wasn't your first choice. So tell us about Scott Conant, the aspiring plumber. <laughs> in hindsight, <laughs> I'll tell you, in hindsight, it's such a bad idea for me to become a, a plumber because I despise physical labor. Okay. So it just never would have worked out. It's hard to wear a suit and be a plumber at, you know, simultaneously. But, I, you know, I couldn't get into the plumbing program because too many people had applied. Mm. So as, as a second choice, I chose culinary arts. Unfortunately, I got in there because as my third choice was actually hairdressing. Oh, and okay. You know, there's a whole hairspray. There's a whole hairspray joke in there somewhere. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, we'll, we'll try to think of that and come to it uh, by the end of the the interview. But as, as it related to, to culinary arts, like why was that your yeah. second choice? Why was that something that you kind of took an interest in at a young age? I, you know, I loved it. I walked into that kitchen for the first time, and I remember just really doing well. I remember, you know, making things like lasagna for, and we would cook for the students and we would also have a little separate restaurant for the uh, teachers, instructors, and anyone could show up. We had a lot of senior citizens that would show up and things like that. But I, I took to it immediately. And I, you know, I come from a, an Italian American family. So food was always such a huge part of growing up and that, you know, the table in general. And simultaneously, I started working at a family friend's restaurant. So it all kind of clicked all at the same time. I was a dishwasher to start. And then a few months into it, I started prepping food in the basement. And that was, you know, that's, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the camaraderie and that 
you know, that kitchen environment. I played a lot of baseball as a kid. <laughs> and that camaraderie that I found was really similar to, to being on a team. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned your family and and how much did that experience growing up in an Italian-American family, the Northeast? You know, I'm sure, you know, there was a lot of cooking going on at all times. How did that shape your your love of food? It was a big part of it. My my father's family actually grew. My father grew up on a farm in Maine as well. So that was another another big part of it. Um, there was always that attention to the on the table. And I was a chubby kid, so you know I wanted the more food around me, the better. I mean, <laughs> let's just call it what it is. <laughs> uh, is there a specific dish that that any of your you know your parents or your grandmothers made that kind of brings back those vivid memories from childhood? Oh my God, yeah, I have my mom visiting me right now, and she's already made sausage and peppers, and she's made chicken cutlets for me, and you know that Sunday sauce with meatballs and and sausage stewed together inside a tomato sauce that she cooks for like 24 hours. You know, I grew up with that stuff. So for me, that's, it's like coming home. And that's the first thing I wanted her to do when she arrived was, all right, let's, let's go shopping and we'll get chicken cutlets and stuff because I want my daughters to, to experience those same things. Absolutely. Yeah. When you think back to those days um, in school, what, what was a typical day like for you, you know, at, at a vocational school? Cause I, I would imagine it's, it's quite different than a, than a typical high school. Yeah, it was very different. We would do three weeks of academics. So your traditional, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. And then we would do three weeks of our shop, what we called our shop. So I, I had culinary arts. My friends were in plumbing and carpentry and, and actually the, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, all that stuff, they would build a home. That was their mm. vocation, right? So they would build this home and and uh, and whatnot. And so we would do three weeks of that and then three weeks, three weeks on, three weeks off. So I always say I got 50% of the academic education I needed <laughs> to really compensate when I got, when I got out of school. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, more, more importantly, you got the you got the culinary education. And um, I, I know I know you also got you kind of got bit by the travel bug at a fairly young age as well. How much has travel also shaped your point of view as a chef? Oh, and travel is everything. It's given me perspective. It's given me an understanding of people and cultures and appreciation of those cultures and appreciation of particularly of, of the immigrant experience. You know, my grandparents came here, uh, my mother's side and well, my grandfather came here in the 30s. And um, my father's family, funny enough, came to this country in, in 1620 and founded Salem, Massachusetts. Wow. So that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. So if you ever go to Salem, there's a huge statue of a guy named Roger Conan. And that's my great, great, great wow. grandfather. That's yeah. so cool. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> yeah. No, no. You think back to the, some of those travels, what, what's like your favorite, you know, trip or, or visit or even meal that you had while abroad? There's, there's so many. I mean, I, you know, I, I love going to Asia. I love experiencing the foods there. I mean, I grew up obviously with a, as I said, your traditional Italian American foods. So I've always cooked through an, a European scope and a European lens, uh, particularly with Italian food. But I went to CIA and cooked French food, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me, going to Asia and going to different parts of the world that don't necessarily cook through that European lens, it's always eye opening. And I I love that food. I mean, I, I remember going to Thailand for the first time and walking through an outdoor market and I was on a, I was a guest of someone, uh, it was a business trip and they were taking me through this outdoor market and I saw this woman with, I don't know, maybe 20 pots of different curries mm. and I just tasted all the different curries. And I, I swear to you, I felt like I'd never had Thai food before. 
It was <laughs> the flavors were unlike anything I'd ever experienced with Thai food. It was the, they were so developed and so layered and so complex. It was really fun. Where's next on the list? Well, we have a trip set up to Turkey. My wife is Turkish. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to go back to Turkey. We have a home there. And it's great for the kids to be able to, my daughters, to be able to experience um, so much of Turkey every year. So that's the next trip that we have coming up. What What do you love about the, the Turkish culture? Oh, my God. There's so many things. You know, it's so similar to uh, the Italian culture that I grew up with. There's just such a warmth and such a, a soulfulness and that appreciation for food and everything on the table, such a pride in their culture, which I, I just love. I love seeing that. It's my favorite part of travel is experiencing the pride that everyone has towards how they grew up, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. sense of nostalgia, of course, and just that, you know, what they're bringing forward and how generous they are with the emotions of it all and the nostalgia of it all and, you know, generous with, with their food as well. So... There's just so many fun things. And, the, you know, Turkey is such a, a long history of things and good and bad. I mean, we could we could identify the, the negative aspects of it as well. And how so much of that food stems from Armenian culture. Most Turks I've always spoken to have always acknowledged the Armenian aspect of those stuff, of those items. Do, do you guys balance, you know, kind of those influences from your Italian heritage and, and her Turkish heritage, you know, maybe in the kitchen at home um, when you're cooking as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, one of the I just I have a book coming out in uh, September and there's a whole chapter with a lot of the Turkish foods that I cook at home. And a lot of the things that I, you know, that I've grown up with as well, maybe a little play on some of it, you know, updated and, and things like that. So there's a, there's so many there's so many fun aspects of what these girls, what my daughters get to experience that I was never able to experience in the past. Yeah. You guys cook a lot together, right? With your, your daughters as well. I try to, I try <laughs> to. Yeah. My 11 year old, you know, she's starting to get into social media and stuff like that. So I'm trying to keep the phone away from her and spend more time with your father. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a struggle at that age. Yes, it is. Yes. It Do is. you see them following in, in dad's footsteps, either in the kitchen and or on TV? I have no idea. I would never put it on them. I always tell them, whatever you do, make sure that it's creative. Make sure that it's something that you love. I always feel like creative people are the best people. What, what do they think of dad being on TV? I think they don't care much. I mean, you know, in, in the beginning when they were little and they would see me up there, they would, you know, spend about three seconds saying Dada and then they were over it. So I, I think it's pretty much it's pretty much taken over. They were more, you know, I, I had told them that I'm friendly with Jacques Pepin and, and Jacques Torres. And they were like, you know, the chef Jacques, like they were so excited that I knew you know, Jacques Pepin and Jacques Torres. So was, they were more, more impressed by the people that I know, as opposed to, you know, be me being somebody to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've, I'm sure met a lot of people uh, throughout your career. You've been cooking for 35 near, years now since you were a teenager yourself. Uh, very for long. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> people can do the math if they want, but how, how do you, you manage to stay, you know, inspired and continue evolving as a chef? You know, we are in really unique times when it comes to the food world and all things culinary. And I, you know, I think back, I think back when I was 15 years old and the opportunities that exist now simply didn't exist back then. So I had no idea what I was getting into. You know, at this point in my career, I consider myself more of a food entrepreneur because I have so many things that I do, you know, between restaurants and other, you know, things on television as well. And, and just constantly keeping myself busy through that scope and that lens of food. Are there any chefs, you know, older or younger that, that you look up to? 
Oh my God, there's so many, so many. I, you know, I always say the big three in New York City, Jean-Georges, Danielle, and Eric Repair. Those are kind of the big three that mm-hmm. I always look at. I mean, a chef like Thomas Keller and look what he's, he's accomplished over the years. I, I, I'm always inspired by them. It's not what I do. It's actually not what I want to do. But I always have such respect, respect for the craft. And when you think about the food scene, when I moved to New York City in 1990, and I worked at a restaurant called San Domenico on Central Park South. I think of who the top chefs in New York City were then. And you you would talk about Le Bernardin, which is Eric Repair worked there then. He works, he's still there. Talk about Danielle. He was at Le Cirque at the time. And you would speak about Jean-Georges, who was at, uh, who was, who had just left the Drake Hotel. I believe it was the Drake. And then he soon, soon thereafter opened up Jojo and eventually went on to open up Jean-Georges. I mean, those are the chefs that you talked about then. And they're still, that's 30 years, 31 years ago. They're still the chefs that you're speaking about. And that is from a creative perspective, from a chef, like the cook in me has so much respect for that because it is really hard to stay on top of your game. And they are doing it in, a, in big ways. Yeah, absolutely. Staying on top of your game, staying relevant, um, you know, evolving with, you know, the times and everything. I think that that's, uh, you know, an incredible feat for sure. Do you have a favorite person that you've cooked for or maybe somebody you would love to cook for? At the restaurant I used to work at years ago, every once a month or so, Pavarotti and Bruce Springsteen would come in for dinner together in a private room. <laughs> and they would sit at 11 p.m. It's, they would sit down for dinner and they would just talk until two or three o'clock in the morning. And those were the experiences at the time where it was like, God, I got to work late. I got to be here to cook for him. You know, it was really annoying. Got to be back at 9 a.m. And I'm here until, you know, 1, 1 1.30 in the morning. But in hindsight now, I would never have paired the two of them up. You know what I mean? (laughs) I would never have thought that they had this tremendous respect for one another, that they would just sit and talk for hours. Those are the stories and things in my career that I've, that I've, I've done dozens of stories like that, where it's just, you got to pinch yourself at a certain point, because I forget that I've done a lot. I've been around for a long time, as you were so quick to point out. (laughs) To be a fly on on that table or that wall, um, to listen to some of those conversations. Um, I'm so curious. Um, I know you and your family moved to to Arizona a few years ago. Um, How has life in the desert been treating you and how many snakes have you found in your backyard? None in the backyard. We had two rattlesnakes, three rattlesnakes, three years in a row in October, and which was kind of was kind of wild. But, you know, they were quickly scooped up and brought back out to the desert. I mean, I don't know if the same one kept showing up year, year <laughs> after year, but we haven't seen him this, we didn't see him this past October. And I hope not to see him, him or her uh, this coming October. But, you know, I'll tell you, being out here after having been in New York City for 27 years, you know, meeting my wife there, having children there, opening so many restaurants, it was time. It was time for me to kind of turn the page. Uh, and a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy. Even even Bobby Flay said to me on set one day, are you really moving to Arizona? Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, by the way, Bobby now has... But a, now he's uh, in uh, LA. Yeah, he's yeah. in LA. So, you know, <laughs> just, just saying, you know, I'm not saying I'm a trendsetter or anything <laughs> coming out West, but... I'll say it. Um, no. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, throughout this entire craziness of the past year or so, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I was happy to be here before. There's something about, there's just something about coming home. I travel a ton. There's something about coming home and feeling like I'm in a resort. You know, the weather is Mm -hmm. always spectacular here. It's always sunny. We really appreciate when it's a rainy day just for a little bit of a change in weather. But there's something about, you know, sitting outside at the pool, you know, doing phone calls out there, making people jealous when I'm on, I'm doing FaceTime or Zoom meetings. 
uh, <laughs> outside. There's, it, it's, you know, it's a more active life. It's a more active lifestyle. And I just, I appreciate that, you know, just kind of reigning in the pace a touch. Do you think you would ever move back to New York or is Arizona, is this, is this it for you guys? Well, I'm too young to say this is it forever, That's right? True. But uh, you, know, <laughs> you never know. I, I think it's all about potential opportunities. It's, I'm really happy here. I don't see myself leaving unless something crazy were to happen. Speaking of, you know, Phoenix and, and Scottsdale and, and the desert, what excites you about the food scene in that area? There's so many things happening here. You know, Phoenix is the fifth largest city in this country. Wow. And I didn't know a that. Lot, yeah. People don't know that. And so a lot of people here and there's a lot of opportunities. It's very business friendly, uh, which is one of the reasons that I, that I love it and I appreciate it and why I moved here in the first place. Yeah. There's great restaurants that have been here. There's great restaurants that are opening. There are so many opportunities for growth and expansion. There's a gentleman here named Sam Fox. And if you don't know the name, he created True Foods. And a lot of mm -hmm. people on the East Coast don't really know True Foods or Flower Child, some of these restaurants that he's created. He has sold those concepts and he has he's been an inspiration for me and for so many other people. And it's a great incubator market to be able to work on something, hone it, and then potentially take it out. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'm working on with my restaurants is looking for that kind of growth. Yeah. And you, you have two of them so far, Mora Italian and the Americano. Right. Um, so you're obviously a pro at, you know, kind of creating a new restaurant from the ground up. So I would, I would actually love to know your process. Like what's step one when you decide, okay, we're opening a restaurant. Like what's the first thing that you, you have to kind of hone in on? The first thing I think about is the experience that I want the customers to achieve. So, you know, I kind of put myself in their shoes and kind of, you know, mentally visualize what kind of experience they should be having. And then I try to visualize what that food looks like on the plate. And, you know, what are some of the like small dishes that we can kind of ping pong ideas off of? So if it's more of an Italian American style restaurant, like what does that look like? You know, is it a Fra Diablo? You know, all this kind of stuff. That's what I envision initially. And I try to put those pieces together to really hone a concept so that we can zoom in on the details. You know, the fun part of doing a restaurant is when you're first starting looking at it, you can look at a really high up and these are all the things I want to do. But as you start to hone in and you get closer to what that restaurant's going to be, you really got to pull some things away that aren't going to work. And you want to make ultimately make people happy that it's, you know, it's not about me. It's about me being who I am within the confines of this concept and staying true to what that is. And then once we step over those lines, that's when things start to go a little sideways. What is that recipe, you know, testing process like once you kind of start to visualize some of these dishes and, and how you want that experience to go? Like how many times do you have to, you know, test a certain dish or recipe before that's kind of signed off on and that's going on the menu? Until you get it right. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work at all. I mean, there's, there are moments when you, I just say, you know what, it was a great idea, but it doesn't execute well. So let's get rid of it. There's other times where, you know, inevitably when you put something on a menu, it's eventually going to settle. And where does it settle? Right. That's the problem. The problem is the ideas are sound, but if you're not executing them right, it's just a, it's just a good idea. I try not to get overly emotional about the brick and mortar, uh, but mm -hmm. I do get emotional about the process of food. 
Uh, and I want to make sure that that if it's nostalgic to me, it's going to be nostalgic to somebody else. If it conjures up a particular emotion in me, it's going to do the same for other people who are equally as passionate. Speaking of the brick and mortar, I mean, are you super involved in that? Are you kind of concentrate more on the menu and let somebody else kind of take care of that? Or are you involved in the entire vision of the restaurant? I try to be involved in everything. My business partners out here in Phoenix, they have a design build company. So I really trust their vision on things. The Americano, if you see pictures of it, it is an absolutely stunning restaurant. Couldn't be more proud of what that restaurant is. And I feel the same about Mora. It's a beautiful restaurant. It's casual, um, but it's still really well appointed and thoughtful. Do you have any advice maybe for an aspiring restaurateur that might be listening? <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Be a don't car salesman. <laughs> be a plumber. <laughs> yeah, be a plumber. Uh, no, I'm kidding. You know, it, restaurants are not as easy as they used to be. Um, there's a lot of changes that have happened in restaurants on the financial side, which make it tremendously difficult to own and operate. When I think about the cost structures, I'll, I'll tell you, just a year ago, in March of last year, until today, we've seen price increases on food uh, up to 42% across the wow. board, 42% across the board. Now, steaks are a little bit more expensive. Other items are a little bit less expensive, but it's been 42% across the board. There's not a lot of businesses that can adjust accordingly. There's a lot of challenges right now, but I think you need to be excited by the challenges. Nothing is going to go smoothly. And that's what I tell everybody. If you want to get into this business, do it. Jump in feet first and get ready to work because any success that you may identify is going to come with a ton of challenges. And the key is they're going to come. They're going to be there. You have to tackle them. But the real key is to never let the guests know that you've met any challenges along the way. And if you could do that, then get ready for tomorrow because it's going to happen again. Chop fans, stay tuned. Scott is dishing on our favorite show coming up next. I could say the same thing about about television as well. You know, everything that you see on TV is not necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. And you can certainly attest to that. You've been a judge on Chopped for over 10 years now. Um, what do you remember about getting the call from the network initially to appear on the show? Well, you know, the backstory on that is, is that I was asked to do a different show on a different network years ago. And I turned it down. And my PR person at the time was really angry at me. <laughs> so you can imagine. And yeah, my whole my whole team was pretty upset with me. Um, so I, when I got the call from the network, I decided I'm not going to lose this opportunity. I don't know where it's going to take me. But I also had a, a few restaurants that I really needed. The way I looked at it is television is such a great advertising platform. You know, I'd be crazy to to turn away from that. I, so I did it and I was begrudgingly and I, and I actually found myself having fun and it was a good time. So I, I kept doing, it. they kept inviting me and I kept doing it. At the time, Amy, what did you think of, of the show's concept? And did you think that it would have the longevity that, that it's obviously had over, over the years? No way that, you know, I don't think you go into these things. I mean, you know, right. You don't walk into these things saying, I'm going to do this for the next 13 years. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's not up to you. <laughs> so, uh, no, I never thought that it would be as successful as it is, but I never thought it wouldn't be as successful. You know, I was just kind of along for the ride. And I feel like what we created, the benefit is what we've created with, particularly with Chopped, is great friendships. 
uh, we are we are a family in the best ways, and we fight like families, and we laugh like families, and we we reach out to one another when we're going through a tough time, and we're we're there to support one another when someone else is having a hard time, and that's the best aspect of about it that never shows on television itself. I mean, I, I think it shows in the sense that you guys obviously have, you know, a chemistry, a camaraderie, you know, a respect for each other. But I love hearing I, I love hearing that because you you know, you're not the first person on this podcast to, to say that. I think, in fact, okay. everybody has said that, you know, that it's that it really is a family. And and that is the, the most important thing about, you know, yeah. being part of the Food Network family is that it is mm-hmm. a family. When you think about, you know, just over the years on Chopped, obviously it's become just like this iconic show for Food Network. Are there any like stories from set or like moments that you haven't told anyone before that you can share with us here? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Taking them to the grave, huh? I, no, there's, you know, there's never, nothing ever happens. We just sit there no. when the cameras, <laughs> when the camera's not on, we don't speak. That's the way. <laughs> I do not believe you for one second. Nor, nor should you. Nor should you. There is so you know the best part of Chopped is uh, unfortunately on the edit room floor, right? Mm, Most of that yeah. stuff doesn't fit into the show itself. Um, and, but we have had such great laughs, and we have had people don't know this about me. I get I have a reputation for being a little bit stern, and you know maybe not so nice. But I'm the biggest clown on set. And um, I have to rein myself in sometimes because I'll start getting side eyes by the producers saying, like, Scott, <laughs> we're in this. You, you know, that we're in this, Scott. Let's go. And I, yeah, yeah, chef. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's get through it. Let's get through let's, it. Let's what, get through it. Be serious. What, yeah. what is the hardest part about filming? Because I, I have to imagine those days are, are pretty long and, and you shoot a lot of shows, you know, in, in, in chunks and, and it's probably long days and that kind of thing. What what is the most challenging part about it? Let's let's be honest, right? If I weren't doing that, I'd be stuck in a kitchen someplace. I have no complaints. I am <laughs> grateful for the opportunity. And it's no BS. Mark Murphy says it all the time. If it wasn't for this, we'd be running restaurants all the time. We'd be inside kitchens night after night after night and not spending time with our families. Yes, the days are long on set. Yes, sometimes it's it's a little bit much. But when you think of the alternative, we it is a blessing for us to be there. And I, I take that to heart. I, I am full of gratitude for the opportunity. Um, that's really nice to hear, actually. Um, no, I mean, because it, it, it is, I think it goes back to, you know, just what you were saying about, about being part of this family. Um, and, and you see these contestants coming in who I'm sure would love to be part of that family as well. And, you know, but they have to kind of get through this, this gauntlet, um, that is chopped before they could even, you know, have a, a, an aspiration of doing that. What, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you see contestants make like, you know, show after show? You know, I'll, I will tell you like life, it is all about the attitude that you have towards it. Right. I mean, that's I think that is the biggest thing. A lot of the chefs come on the show and they there's a chip on their shoulder. You know how chefs are. Right. Like we're all we use a little bit of sassy, a little sassy. So, (laughs) you know, and you have to have fun in the process. And if you're not having fun, just don't do it. You know, I, I don't like to compete on TV. I just don't. Everybody who knows me knows that about me. I don't like to do it. I don't have fun. I get overly competitive and I lose my sense of humor. Right. And I think that my sense of humor is my, one of my favorite things about me, even if it's only me, but it's one of my <laughs> favorite things. So I don't want to lose the, the part of myself that loves it. Right. I mean, I don't want to lose that part. I always tell chefs when you come in, make sure you come in with a positive attitude. It may not go your way. Right. You're putting a puzzle together. 
using food in pieces, frankly, that don't fit, right? So you need to make it work somehow. And there's very few who can really excel at that. I mean, really very few. I, I can count the number of great dishes that I've had where I was blown away by it. And that's nobody's fault. It's just some people can figure it out better than others. As simple as that. What is uh, maybe the worst or most difficult basket ingredient you've seen um, throughout all the years? I feel like meat in the in the dessert baskets are always a challenge. On chopped sweets, we've had, I think we had a uh, an entire pig head at one point, which was a real, oh, wow. <laughs> a real challenge. Well, you mentioned chopped sweets, which you are hosting. A slight yeah. change of scenery for you. Can you tell us how that show came to be? I got to tell you, it's so much fun to do that show. And really? Talent of the pastry chefs. I almost feel like pastry chefs have been kind of sitting on the sideline watching Chopped for years. And then at one point, there's an opportunity on, on Chopped Sweets and they are just ready for it. And some of the some of the desserts that they make are, are truly mind blowing. Among the best desserts I've ever had in my life, truly. Uh, really? If you think about that, this is happening in a thirty minute time frame or a forty minute time frame uh, with ingredients, as I said, that don't necessarily belong together. It has been an honor for me to be affiliated with that show in any way, much less to, to host it. I would even venture to say that the quality of food on sweets is much better than the food on shops mm. across the board. Which competition do you think is is more difficult? You know, it's hard to say because pastry chefs have a different language. They're speaking a completely different language and, and they're speaking, there's a knowledge that's a little bit more, there's a little more un, uniformity in that knowledge, although it mm. feels broader to me, right? You have some chefs come in like me who, who cook through a European uh, scope and other chefs come in with an Asian or a South American or whatever the case may be, right? But pastry chefs, there just seems to be a little bit more of a, uh, of a, of a guidebook, Right. Even if you're making some kind of an Asian dessert, it's there's still a similarity, I would say, with, you know, something through, through a European or South American scope. So there's a, a little, you know, for the most part, I don't want to I don't want to stretch it too much. And I definitely don't want somebody to say to me, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, I'm, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Yeah. I don't know which one's more difficult. I will say that the pastry chefs have they seem more prepared. Let's put mm. it that way. Yeah. Which would you rather judge, like a sweet or a savory dish? Well, the challenge for me with the sweet stuff is, you know, I'm judging every course and that's about nine dishes a day. And we were filming five, sometimes <laughs> six a week. That's tough. You know, I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> so <laughs> getting, uh, that's a lot of sweets. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I, I don't necessarily have a sweet tooth. So, you know, I love savory okay. food and I cook savory food. I have a total new respect for, I hosted uh, baker in america for a couple seasons as well and that was uh, you know a whole new respect for pastry chefs after having experienced that and chopped sweets took it to a whole new level you're not a sweets person but do you have a like a, a guilty pleasure you know like dessert or sweet food that you will like gravitate <sighs> towards like it's 11 o'clock at night and you just want i don't know something sweet if I see a souffle on a menu, I'm ordering it, okay. right? I'm ordering the souffle no matter what. Um, but 11 o'clock at night, it, you know, I'm a little bit more of a, a chocolate person, like chocolate covered cashews or something like that. Oh, dark, okay. dark well, chocolate, not milk. That sounds delightful. <laughs> you can give me a peanut butter cup, a Reese's peanut butter cup, yep. and I will. I love peanut butter. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, the best 
best combo peanut butter and chocolate especially if you put them in the freezer first or you get one yeah. of the, like the fresh ones like one of the holiday ones because you know it's like super fresh no um, i like i like them in the freezer yeah <laughs> all right well we're gonna wrap this up with some rapid fire questions and then we'll finish it off with our question that we ask everybody but uh rapid fire round so what yes. music do you listen to while you're cooking it depends on my mood. I'm a Dylan. I'm a huge Dylan fan, huge Willie Nelson fan. So I normally lead with one of those two, but I came up in the eighties and you know, the hip hop music was a big part of my life. So old school hip hop is, uh, I, I really, I like it a lot. Hip hop barbecue station on Pandora is my recommendation for you. Oh yeah. That is, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, it's only about, I mean like 50 songs. I feel like that, that cycle through, but it's, it's like all the, <laughs> it's all the hits. Um, it was definitely my go-to Go for a very long time. Hip hop barbecue. Got it. Hip hop barbecue. Uh, worst, uh, American mistakes when cooking or eating Italian food. Oh, the list is long. Um, <laughs> you, know, there's, you know, not salting the water, olive oil inside the pasta water, um, mm. overcooking the pasta, um, not tossing, you know, taking that. Well, a lot of people do this. It drives me nuts. Taking the pasta, pouring it into the colander, putting it on a platter, putting the sauce on top, and then that water just kind of pools around the exterior mm. of the pasta itself. One of my pet peeves. I think the biggest issue that I that I have with Italian American food is that it's almost like a game of telephone through generations, and a lot of times. Uh, some of the nuances of the food that, say, my grandmother would cook with or is kind of lost through that game of telephone. And then it becomes something overly heavy, heavy handed, a little bit, you know, rustic and sloppy are two very different things. But mm -hmm. in, in the wrong hands, you know, people call sloppy rustic. And that's that's one of the one of the issues. That would be incorrect. All right. Clean up as you cook or clean up once once you're done cooking. Oh, clean up as I cook. Absolutely. Right. Clean as you go. Absolutely. <laughs> what is your go-to uh, takeout order? You give me some great New York Chinese. Yes. <laughs> I'm the happiest guy ever. Are you kidding? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I agree with you. I, I, I live in New York as well. So that's at least, you know, once every, uh, at least once a month, if not every couple of weeks, uh, I got to yeah. go. The, the Chinese food order in takeout is, is the, best. the best. It's the best. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no. Favorite flavor of ice cream. Chocolate? Really, I'm really simple. Vanilla, like oh, vanilla, heavy okay. vanilla. I, I like like double down on the vanilla. Love it. <laughs> yeah. If you could have dinner with anyone, alive or dead, who would who to be? You know, I get this question a lot, and I always feel like I give the wrong answers because nobody ever nobody ever airs it right, and never <laughs> <laughs> nobody ever prints it. So I, all know, right, I we're gonna we're from, gonna this is staying in. I'm saying it right now. You're gonna, <laughs> So I've said everything from Buddha to Jesus to Martin Luther King Jr. to Gandhi to Frank Sinatra to my grandmother. Right. I've, you know, that's a pretty long. That's yeah. a, that's a good that's a good. It's uh, a broad list. It's a broad, list. <laughs> it's a broad, it's a broad, broad spectrum. But it's all of those people. Right. I mean, I, I, I love it. But I will tell you one time I was in Las Vegas. We were doing a photo shoot there and I was with Bobby and I was with Marcus Samuelson and Jeffrey Zakarian. And we had a raucous time. Like it was bananas, how fun and funny it was. So I would love when we get back to it to have another one of those dinners. Yeah. Uh, good time. That sounds like a good time. Uh, a good time that you will not tell us any, uh, any of the goings on <laughs> for. I, I mean, that was Absolutely. all that happened. Dinner. Yeah. That's all that happened. You guys had a great, 
a really fun dinner. Uh, well, this has been so much fun. Uh, but before you go, we do have one yeah. last question. And we ask everybody this question at the end of our Food Network Obsessed uh, interviews. And that would be, what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. And there are no rules. So you can time travel. You can just, you know, travel like on super fast yeah. jets, I guess, if you need to go in between yeah. countries, uh, spend all the money in the world or, or not. There are no rules. It is your perfect food day. I would start with a Japanese breakfast in Tokyo, one of the mm. best breakfasts, or I would have a Turkish breakfast because I just think both of them are about, you know, sampling and tasting a lot of different things. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Tokyo, even though I might get some grief at home, but yeah, <laughs> in, in Tokyo for, for a Japanese breakfast, absolutely one of my favorite, one of my favorite things in the world. Lunch, I mean, somewhere on the Amalfi Coast. Even if it's just mm. walking through the streets of Naples and having Naples street food, you know, fried Naples street food. I mean, what's better than that? You know, nothing. I took a tour one time, just one time down south of Naples. I drove down to a, a small town called Pestum, which have phenomenal ruins if you ever get down there. But fresh mozzarella, the, the mozzarella is so fresh. They put it inside completely unrefrigerated. It's still warm when you mm. take your bite of, uh, out of it and it just oozes fiori li latte and it's just absolutely spectacular. So that would be part of the lunch if, okay. if that's okay. Absolutely. And then, you know, dinner, I'll tell you, I had a, a phenomenal meet, uh, meal one time at Meadowwood in St. Elena and it, mm. it burned down last year in the, during the fires. And if I can go back in time and have a meal like that again, cooked by Chris Costa, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah. True talent. One of the great chefs of this country. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I did not eat at Meta. What I ate at the more casual one, which I'm yeah. being, the name escapes me at the moment. And then dessert. I mean, I know you're not a dessert person, but do you, I guess a souffle, right? <laughs> I have a souffle and who cares who cooks it? I, it's, great. <laughs> it's great. No matter what, as long as it's done right. <laughs> Uh, well, that sounds like a, a fabulous uh, food day. And hopefully you don't get in trouble for, for choosing Tokyo over Turkey. Although I guess I said there's no rules. So maybe you could do um, you could do both. You could just start an early point. morning in Tokyo and then, you know, finish off breakfast over in maybe, Turkey. And yeah, on the plane from Tokyo to Turkey, I can have the Japanese breakfast and then oh there you go land and have another breakfast in Turkey how about that Can I, I change, love it Ryan? I love it. I change it yeah yeah absolutely yeah I think <laughs> I think we're on the record now no one no one can be upset with you and um, it sounds it sounds perfect exactly what it what it's supposed perfect. to be thank you so much for for taking the time this has been so much fun chatting with you and uh, thank you we'll, we'll, we'll do it you. again sometime thank you for thinking of me <laughs> So good catching up with Scott. It always amazes me how many Food Network stars said no when they were first approached by the network. Obviously, there is power in changing your mind, and Scott is a testament to just that. You can catch Scott at the Chopped Judges table on Food Network, and you can watch all episodes of Chopped Sweets streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. As always, thank you guys so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate and review. We love it when you do that. I read every single one of them. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday on Food Network Obsessed. 